One morning, my, uh, in the spring semester of my junior year, I made a phone call to my dad in shame. I was on the golf team in high school and uh, didn't have my own car yet. So most mornings, I would take my mom's car to school so that I could leave early and go to golf practice. And this morning, instead of making the short drive, it was like two miles from my parents' house on Cambridge Way, up Airport Boulevard to Baker High School, where we lived in Mobile, Mobile Alabama. And uh, instead of going to school, though, I decided to go pick up my new girlfriend, Erin McSweeney. Erin <laughs> McSweeney, yeah. And so I drove to her house. She lived almost all the way to Mississippi. And uh, so I went and picked her up and driving in my mom's maroon Pontiac Grand Prix, my new girlfriend, heading to school. Everything is great. And all of a sudden, heard the sound. Thump, 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 thump. You know that sound, right? A flat tire. And uh, this is the first flat tire I had ever personally experienced as a driver. And so I did the only thing I knew to do. Pulled into the parking lot of Dollar General, and I called my dad. Right. And I remember he came, and I verified this story with Aaron, uh, just to make sure I was remembering it correctly, but he and my mom both showed up, and of course, he gave me the talking to, hey, this is how you change a tire, and then they stood and watched me do it and laughed at me <laughs> the whole time, you know, and uh, it was great, but, you know, that morning was not the first time I'd called my dad when I was in a mess, and it wasn't the last time. A few years later, after that, we uh, went to see my grandma in Atlanta, Georgia, and called my dad from a parking lot outside of a jewelry store and said, Dad, I want to buy Aaron this ring. Can you put some money in my bank account? <laughs> and, uh, and he did. And so I got Aaron her wedding ring. You know, my dad is good about that. He's the guy I call when things are tough, when I'm in a tight spot. He's got the answers. Where do you turn in times of crisis? Is it a parent, spouse, a friend that you know has got your back, flat tire, needs some money for your bank account, whatever it is, you know they're going to be there for you. If you're in a crisis, they're the person you call. Now, other people, and I've discovered this within myself as I've gotten older, other people deal with crisis differently. They look within. They plan their way out of their mess, or they hustle, they grind it out, trying to solve their problem with their own ingenuity, a resourcefulness. And I've seen friends approach their crisis different way by retreating and trying to escape it. You know, people turn to drugs, alcohol, unhealthy relationships, whatever. The crisis just seems too much and they just try to escape it. Well, this morning we're going to see from Daniel's life a different way, a better way. Because uh, when Daniel was caught up in this crazy crisis of exile, and we're going to talk about how extreme this crisis he had faced had been, he turned to God. He looked to God for the solution to his problem. And this morning, I want you to know the only way we can be faithful for the future is if we learn to turn to God in times of crisis. And so that's what I want to talk to you about this morning, where to turn in times of crisis. So over the past few weeks, we've been working our way through the second half of the book of Daniel, and we've been looking at these visions. And you know now, from firsthand experience, how bizarre and otherworldly and future-oriented they are. Dreams of beasts, visions of rams and goats, 
little horns with faces that talk. Uh, that's all strange, and, you know, as Christian people living in the 21st century, those things can feel pretty far removed from the stuff of everyday life. But Daniel wasn't just a crazy spirit walker looking into visions all the time. I mean, he was a real guy, too. And he'd known some pretty tough circumstances. He'd, he'd faced his own share of crises. I mean, you think about all the way back in Daniel chapter 1. It began when he's like 14, 15 years old. Are there any 14-year-olds in here at heart? 14, 15, 13, anything? Okay. All right, finally, I knew that I knew you were. I didn't know. I was going to guess you were somewhere around there. I mean, can you imagine at 14, that was younger than Brad Mills when he got a flat tire. 14, getting picked up from your homeland, carried away to the evil empire of Babylon where you're indoctrinated and educated in the Babylonian school of divination and diplomacy. Everything you knew about the world is all of a sudden turned upside down and the way you'd been raised is forced to fit into a mold of these pagan non-God-fearing people. I mean, that would have been really challenging. Not to mention, the next story is his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, refusing to bow down before the statue that Nebuchadnezzar had set up on the plain for all of his officials to bow down and worship. For that defiance, they were thrown into a fiery furnace heated seven times hotter than it normally was. Of course, God miraculously brought him through that, and that was great. Daniel got to witness Nebuchadnezzar lose his mind for arrogantly defying God and saying, look at Babylon the Great that I have built. He had a front row seat to Belshazzar's blasphemy when he brought out the temple vessels from the Jerusalem temple and toasted to his gods from them. Of course, the writing on the wall shows up, and Daniel says, you're a fool. Tonight your soul's required of you, and God's tearing away from you the kingdom. I mean, Daniel had lived through it all, probably most climactically, Daniel 6, when when Darius is made king over Babylon, Daniel continued his practice of praying to the Lord three times a day and was thrown into the lion's den because of it. I mean, his life was crisis after crisis after crisis for 70 years, from the time he's 14 to the time he's in his mid-80s in chapter 9 where we're looking today. Daniel had known crisis. And in every case, he turned to God. And I want to show you why that is. First, I believe he turned to God because he knew that God's word interprets our circumstances. So that's where we find Daniel, the first year of Darius the king. He's opening up his Bible, like I hope you have your Bible opened up. He wasn't looking at Daniel 9, he was looking in the prophet Jeremiah, maybe what Mike had just read for us. But this is what God's word says from Daniel chapter 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, the prophet, for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. Here we find Daniel... First year of Darius, most commentators believe this is after he'd already gone through the ordeal of being cast into the lion's den. And he's got his scrolls out before him, and he's reading what God had said through the prophet Jeremiah. Now, he calls them the books. My Bible's the NASB. I don't know, you probably have something different. It's literally, the Hebrew word is literally the writings. 
And the NIV is on the right track when they say he's reading the Scriptures. Because that's exactly what he's doing. Daniel is poring over and meditating on the things that God had spoken to his people through Jeremiah, the word of the Lord that had come from Jeremiah regarding the 70 years of exile. Mike already read us one of those, the letter that God had instructed Jeremiah to send to the Babylonian exiles because the prophets who were with them in exile kept telling them, hey guys, this is just a momentary blip on the timeline of God's activity for us as his treasured people. Don't worry, don't settle down, don't unpack your boxes, get ready, restoration is coming. God had to tell Jeremiah, send these people a letter not to believe those liars. They're not speaking for me. They need to plant their roots, make their families enlarge. They need to dig in for the long haul. But Jeremiah also spoke about it in Jeremiah 25. God said to the people pretty clearly before the exile even began, Because you have not listened to my words, I'll summon all the peoples of the north and my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, declares the Lord. And I'll bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations. I'll completely destroy them and make them an object of horror and scorn and an everlasting ruin. That's what God said about his people. But then Jeremiah 25, 12. But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation, the land of the Babylonians, for their guilt, declares the Lord. And I will make it desolate forever. So I don't know what you believe about the Bible. Lots of different ideas floating out there. You know, a lot of non-Christians believe the Bible's just the sentimental religious impressions of ancient people. They were superstitious, and as they encountered all their superstitious world, they wrote down what they felt in their heart. You know, other people think they're, you know, epileptic. They're having seizures and having these visions, and out of the place of mental illness, they're writing these thoughts down. Now, even some Christians have sort of disordered views about the Bible. We kind of view it as a, an index or an encyclopedia of inspirational quotes put on our coffee mug and bumper stickers. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you. Or that it's the morning pep talk that fires us up, gets us ready for all the things we're going to face throughout the day. But when Daniel opened the Bible, when he was meditating on the word of the Lord that came through Jeremiah... He believed with all his heart that God was about to perfectly interpret his circumstances. It was God's word, period. When he read it, God was speaking directly to him and in interpreting his life. You know, I cannot imagine what he must have felt to see Darius and Cyrus the Great conquering Babylon, of looking back over the course of his life, not 15 years, but 70 years, and realizing, probably always knowing, but finally realizing that maybe all the promises that God had made to his people about 70 years of exile and then judgment was coming on Babylon, maybe the events that he was seeing play out around him, Belshazzar's defeat by Cyrus the Great, 70 years passing, maybe he realized that God really was doing what he said he was going to do. It was perfectly interpreting his circumstances so that he understood the crisis he was living through. You know, and I know that from Daniel's perspective, he had this sense of importance. He's in a hinge year where everything that came before it led to that point and everything after flowed from it. But what about us? You know, we open the Bible and we read Jeremiah 29 and we're like, that's great that God said that to his people, but 
What does God have to say to me? You know, our unruly boss, his name's not written here. Like, hey, you only got to work there 15 years, and then I'm bringing judgment on that guy. And that'd be nice, perfectly interpreting it. You know, it's not like we can open it up and say anything about the United States of America or anything like that. And, and we're like trying to grapple and understand if God's word perfectly interpreted Daniel's circumstances, does it really have anything to say for ours? And I think it does. You know, I love the Bible. I challenge you all the time to read the Bible. And I think that it really speaks to two dynamics in our times of crisis. First, when we open up the Bible and ask God to interpret our circumstances, we find that He actually intends to do something through us and with us in the crisis we face. Like James tells people in James chapter 1, to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So you come to your Bible in the morning, and on your heart, on your mind, is this conflict you know that's coming at work today. And you just wish that God would say, hey, you just go in there and gut it out, and I'll, they'll get what they deserve. I'm going to rain fire from heaven and burn up that place. You know, and you'd say, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. But, but he doesn't. Instead, what he says is the circumstances, the crisis, the trial you're facing in your job is actually something I'm going to use in your life to change you, to refine you, to shape you, to be more like Jesus. He intends to use your crisis as a crucible to refine you, to make you more confident in who He is and not the circumstances of your life. So yeah, it perfectly interprets our circumstances. We see, hey, this isn't meaningless. This isn't just what happens to people like me. This, God is not absent. He's not you know, hands-off in my circumstances. God is right here trying to accomplish something through the crisis I face. But then there's another element to it. That the Bible's not just, uh, you know, the old Stoic philosopher telling us to suck it up and rub some dirt in it. That there's actually more to it than that even. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 15 that everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the Scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. We might have hope. And so your boss's name may not be there. You know, you read about King Nebuchadnezzar and not that guy that you have to deal with every day. But at the same time, the way God helped his people through the crisis they faced is instructive. It shows you the way God works. And you find encouragement that if God can be with his people through that, then he can be with us through the crises we face. You think about, you think about financial crisis. You know, you're struggling to make ends meet. You're struggling to come up with the money you need to do the thing you know you need to do. And you come to it and you say, God, what, what am I supposed to do? I'm coming up short. This is a crisis. Help me. And you read the story like we did this week. Jesus sending his disciples out to find... Maybe we didn't read this in our Bible reading plan. Don't quote me on that. But it's in there. Trust me. It's uh, <laughs> Matthew 17. We didn't. But he sends Peter out. Peter's asking him this question. Hey, are we supposed to pay taxes? Or not? Jesus says, well, yeah, of course we are. But here, go out and catch a fish and pull it up and open its mouth. And you'll find the coin in it you need to pay not only your tax, but mine as well. What an amazing provision that God gave. Crisis, are we supposed to pay the tax? Uh, yeah, we are. Well, how are we going to come up with that kind of money? We've kind of taken 
time off from work to just travel around and listen to you. Jesus said, no, I got you. We come and we see in Matthew chapter 6 when Jesus says, you don't have to make a big show about your prayers. Your Father knows what you need before you even ask Him. So you seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all the things, all the rest will be added to you. God's Word interprets our circumstances. He shows us that He is able to provide. You come to a health crisis and you look to the Scripture and you wish you could find the one promise that says, hey, all your sicknesses are going to be wiped away and you're going to live forever. But instead, we find a different reality. And we see that, okay, maybe God does have a bigger purpose for me through this. And, you know, not to baptize, probably just an element of common sense or inspiration, but what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. That kind of idea that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And through this health circumstance, God's either going to show himself to be the same one who said to the little girl who was asleep in her dad's bedroom, little girl, get up. Or one day, he's going to call me, like he called Lazarus, out of the grave. Lazarus, come forth. Either way, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so the encouragement that we find in Scripture says that even if our circumstances aren't identical to what the people of God faced in times past, the God we serve is the same God they served, and he's able to do in our lives what he did for them. And so we find encouragement. So Daniel knew that God was able to interpret his circumstances through his word, and so he turned to him in times of crisis. But there's another element to this, and we're going to get into this big part of the prayer here in a second. It's not just about God's word interpreting our circumstances. It's also his compassion encouraging our repentance. God's compassion encourages our repentance, and that's where Daniel goes next. He says in verse 4, I prayed to the Lord my God, or verse 3, I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly, and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us, open shame, as it is this day, to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away in all the countries to which you've driven them because of the unfaithful deeds which they committed against you. Open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we've sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. Nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his teachings, which he set before us through his servants, the prophets. Indeed, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice. So the curse has been poured out on us, along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God. For we have sinned against him. Thus he has confirmed his words which he'd spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us, to bring on us great calamity. For under the whole heaven there's not been anything done like what was done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come on us. Yet we have not sought the Lord the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to your truth. 
Therefore, the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us. For the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds which he has done. But we have not obeyed his voice. Now that is heavy. And we read that and we feel sorry for Daniel. Like, Daniel, don't be so hard on yourself, man. To err is to be human. God understands. But as Daniel meditated on the book of Jeremiah, he came right into God's presence, kind of like Isaiah did. You know, Isaiah's in the temple praying in Isaiah 6, and he has this vision of God seated on his throne, and the train of his robe fills the temple, and the angels are there worshiping him, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And in the light of God's presence, the Holy One, Isaiah has to reckon with his own sin. And so he falls on his face and says, Woe is me. And that's kind of what happens with Daniel. As he's meditating on the scripture about what God says about his people, about what exile is all about, he realizes that the crisis they're in, the 70 years of exile that they've had to endure, and his life lined up with it perfectly, was a crisis of their own making. I don't know if you noticed, but most of what he had to say was about what Israel had done. And it wasn't pretty. I mean, verse 5 is pretty indicative of the whole prayer. He names out five verbs. We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly, rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Each one of these is distinct. They're kind of similar, but they approach the fact from different angles. They provide a 360-degree view of Israel's sin. Daniel said they had sinned, which, biblically speaking, sin means to miss the mark, to fail to achieve the standard that God has set. We've sinned. We've committed iniquity. Biblically, iniquity, you'd think that's just a synonym for sin, but it's different. It comes from the same word that means to be twisted or perverted. And instead of following the straight and narrow that God had laid out for his people, they had twisted everything. Instead of making it about the glory of God, they had pursued their own desires. And because of that, Daniel says, they acted wickedly and rebelled. They had refused to acknowledge the authority of God, lived in open rebellion to him, and had willfully walked in the way of wickedness. You want to get an idea about what wickedness is all about, all you have to do is run your finger through First and Second Kings and see the things that those princes and kings that Daniel names did, setting up pagan high places on every hill and under every tree, intermarrying with foreign women and bringing their gods into the mix. They even talk about one king who sacrificed his own children to the god Molech. You want to know wickedness? These are not minor infractions, technicalities. God, some vindictive bully sitting up in heaven, finds every little thing they've done out of line. Now, Daniel owns up to it. They had transgressed against God, turning aside from every commandment and ordinance that he'd said. There's no rationalizing it. There's no justifying it. Daniel owned up to the fact of their sinfulness. And in doing so, he acknowledged that despite their faithlessness, God had been absolutely faithful 
He'd held up his end of the bargain. In fact, he had warned them from the beginning when he first gave them his law that full obedience was the expectation and anything less would bring judgment. He'd warned them through Moses in Deuteronomy 28, verse 36. The Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. And you shall become a horror, a proverb, and a byword among all the peoples where the Lord will lead you away. I mean, from the beginning, God had warned His people that living sinfully against Him, transgressing His law, would lead to exile. And God had done it. He had followed through on the word He said He was going to do. So Daniel confessed, repented openly before Him. But get this. The same God who had brought those curses, that terrible judgment on his people, was also the God that Daniel could call in verse 4, the God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. The God in verse 9, whom, who, to whom belongs compassion and forgiveness. See, even though God is a God of judgment, fulfilling what he said he was going to do on his people who turned against him, Daniel's hope was in the fact that God remained a compassionate God, the God who had revealed himself to Moses as merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So we look at Daniel's prayer and we think, Daniel, hey, you're being too hard on yourself. You know, lighten up. Surely God's not that upset. But Daniel had lived it. He knew how upset God was, and so he took the moment to acknowledge openly before the Lord how wickedly Israel had behaved, and he threw himself on the compassionate mercy of God. And this prayer is pretty interesting for another reason. You know, the Old Testament's full of examples of kings and priests offering prayers on behalf of the people. But Daniel was neither one of those. And one commentator put it like this. She said, There's no indication that Daniel was officially qualified to take upon himself this ministry of intercession. Who made you prayer laureate of Israel, Daniel? Now, who had appointed you for this task? To, I don't know if you notice, all his pronouns are plural. It's all about we, us, and our. What, what is Daniel doing? He's praying a public, corporate prayer of repentance. Nobody would asked him to. Nobody had appointed him for the task. Instead, he had this burden in his soul. That as he looked at the circumstances of his life, analyzed the exile from God's perspective, saw that it was God's just judgment on the people's sin, and saw that God still remained a God of mercy and compassion, he had to do something about it. He had to take up all the responsibility for his people and pray a prayer of repentance. And so he confessed it all. Again, no minimizing sin, no rationalizing sin, no justifying sin. Just openly declaring it, what God already knew, because Daniel was convinced that God would be merciful and compassionate towards him. And this morning, the same compassionate God that Daniel flung himself on is the God who stands ready to forgive you. I mean, the reality is that like Daniel and Israel, most of the crises we face are crises of our own making. 
They, they have been in my life. Instead of living obediently for Jesus, giving Him praise and glory for everything, I, I find a way to make everything about me. Things my family do and say, I want them to make me happy and make me, you know, make my life easier. I want everybody to bow before me and do the things that I don't want to do. And most marriage problems follow, most marriage crises, I guess, follow sinful actions perpetuated over years and years and years. And, and even if they are precipitated by one act of betrayal or violence or something, all you have to do is look backwards and you see how you got there. These are crises of our own making. I mean, crisis in our relationship with our parents. I had a few of those blow-up fights with my parents. Much as I love them and still do. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. They're bad. They can be crazy. You can find yourself in your room crying, not really understanding why or how what just happened happened. And yet, even though that moment is so severe and the crisis is so deep, all you have to do is look back. And see, that relationship with your parents was frayed through perpetual acts of dishonesty, disrespect, disobedience. And finally, it came to a head in this crisis. They're crises of our own making, the crisis in our country, even. We've talked about this so much over the past few weeks. Now, it seems like 2020, oh, what a crazy year. Yeah, but we all are aware. The crises we're facing have been building for decades as distrust sets in, right? Animosity takes root. Moral rot and decay. The crisis we're in has been brewing for a while, and it's a crisis of our own making. And here's the problem. Most of us deal with our crises, as I said at the beginning, by looking within, by digging deeper, by trying hard. We make promises to our spouses. Hey, I promise I'm never going to do that again. And they know, and you know, that you've made that same promise last week, and you've done it again. The solution to the crisis is not to dig deeper or to try harder. It's to do what Daniel did and openly confess sin before a compassionate and merciful God and ask Him to do what He can do. I think Daniel's prayer shows us that if we want to experience restoration, we have to repent. Bar none, that's exactly what's happening. And so this morning, church, I, I could not, I, I tend to, in my illustrations, default to my own life circumstances. And so the crises I talk about often are about my life. And so I wouldn't try to put myself in your shoes. There's no way I could comprehend all that you are facing. But you know the crises I'm talking about. I encourage you and implore you this morning to cast yourself on the compassionate mercy of God. You see, he's already taken the first step towards you. He sent his son, Jesus. And you, and you think about Jesus. Daniel gave these five verbs. We've sinned, we've committed iniquity, acted wickedly, rebelled, and have turned away from your commandments and ordinances. And you think about what you know from reading the Gospel of Mark about Jesus. Jesus never sinned. When he set out to live his life, he hit God's mark every time. Never committed iniquity, never twisted or perverted away from the straight and narrow that God had set before him. He never acted wickedly, but righteously. 
And he never rebelled against the authority of God, but submitted himself and said, Not my will, but your will be done. And in every commandment, he obeyed. That is God's step towards us. Not just opening his arms as a loving father would, but actually sending his own son to live the life that you and I should have lived. The perfect life of righteousness that Israel set out to maintain. Everything God commands, we will do, they said. And they failed. But Jesus came, said, I delight to do your will. Lived his life perfectly obedient before the Father and then offered himself up sacrificially suffering alienation and exile from God, saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the judgment you and I deserve. But God sent Jesus to suffer it for you. You want to know about the mercy and compassion of God? He's calling today for you in the midst of your crisis to see that compassion and to repent, to turn away from your sin and to take hold of Jesus. And if you do that, you know that you'll experience restoration. Your crisis will blow over because, lastly, God's faithfulness ignites our hope. God's faithfulness ignites our hope. The last four verses give this one to us clearly. Daniel says in verse 15, he transitions, confessing sin. Verse 15 is important. And now, O Lord, who have brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as it is this day. We've sinned and we've been wicked. O Lord, in accordance with all your righteous acts, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy mountain. For because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to all those around us. So now, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplications. And for your sake, O Lord... Your sake, O oh Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. O oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city which is called by your name. For we're not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own. Maybe your Bible says any righteousness of our own. But on account of your great compassion. O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, listen and take action. For your own sake, O oh my God, do not delay, because your city and your people are called by your name. Listen, these are the, my four favorite verses in this whole book. You want to know how Daniel was able to persevere through 70 years of crisis after crisis after crisis after crisis? Because somewhere down in his soul was the hope expressed in these four verses. He knew how sinful he was as a man and how sinful his people were. He knew that God was right to judge them. But he believed deep in his heart that God wouldn't go back on all the things that he had promised to do. That he had a purpose, an everlasting purpose, to establish a kingdom that has no end. And that along the way there would be troubles and trials and crises after crisis. But eventually... Things would resolve. Daniel was confident in the faithfulness of God. And he was because, even we, we see it here, he knew how God had been in the past. Even though Daniel had lived a, he lived a thousand years after the Exodus, it was the event that loomed large in his mind as he thought about the God he served. You know, we've, we did read the Exodus this week. God 
redeeming his people out of slavery in Egypt. And I was just kind of struck, reading it in larger chunks like we did, you know, you just kind of plow through it. And I'd forgotten how amazing those 10 plagues are. They're they're the Sunday school thing. I still see the cartoon that my grandma, when she was my Sunday school teacher, made us watch. The frogs hopping always get me. But you think about how miraculous it really was. It's so miraculous that modern people refuse to believe it actually happened the way it's written. But Daniel knew. Daniel knew that God had come through, that when his people were captive, slaves, to the most powerful military might the world had ever known, the ancient Egyptian empire. And even though they had been ground to a pulp, Pharaoh, using every tactic at his disposal, infanticide, killing every male child who was born, removing straw from the brick makers so that they had to find their own stubble and they'd wear them down. Everything he could do, psychological warfare, violence, you name it, none of it mattered when God showed up. God showed up and he released his people from slavery. But here's the kicker. All of it had been foretold. That when God first entered into relationship with Abraham and the covenant in Genesis chapter 15, he told him, your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they'll be afflicted for 400 years. But I'll bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Well, you know what? That's exactly what happened. 430 years in slavery. Bam! God showed up and brought judgment on Egypt. And as Daniel reflected on the Exodus a thousand years before, of course he understood that Exodus and exile are not identical. There are different dynamics at play. But he definitely saw that they were parallel. They were alike and similar. And that if God could redeem his people from slavery in Egypt... Surely a little thing like exile in Babylon wasn't too big of a task for him to take. And plus, he knew that Jeremiah had promised, after 70 years, then I'll judge Babylon and I'll bring you home. And so as Daniel reflected on all this, on who God was, who he had revealed himself to be in the past, his faithfulness to his people, his faithfulness to his promise, fueled the fire of hope in his soul. And so he asked God, God, not for our sake... We know what we've done, but we're asking you to glorify your name. For your name's sake, redeem your people. Don't let the nation say that our God is powerless. Prove who you really are. Prove how powerful you are. And Daniel developed hope, which biblically speaking is not well wishes. You know, like close your eyes and blow the candle out and hope you get what you asked for. It's not hope, like my daughter's birthday is next week, and we put together, Aaron put together a wish list on Amazon, and every day she tells me, Daddy, did you know I'm getting a unicorn whatever? And and she's like, well, maybe. She always says that, well, maybe, because she put it on her list, she thinks she's getting it, and that's how we are. We're like, hey, did you know that God was going to come through for me? Well, maybe. Maybe he will. Now, you, you run your eyes through the Bible, Story after story after story after story. You think back on your life. You don't have to say maybe. You know the God you serve. You know who he is, what he does. You know that he's never made a promise that he's broken. 
You know that he's never set a plan that hasn't come through? Oh, from our perspective, you know, we get in these crises, and I've been there. Crisis so deep, the hole so dark. Imagine you're never getting out. There's no way God can come through. And maybe that is where you are today. Maybe this season of upheaval and isolation has got you down, wondering if God even cares about you anymore. The Bible tells us that God does have a perfect plan for your life. It may not look like your plan. The Proverbs say many are the plans in the mind of man. Maybe all your plans have pretty much crashed and burned. But Proverbs 19.21, the purpose of the Lord is what will stand. So you don't know, we don't know, we can't even comprehend how the crisis we face right now is going to work together for God's purpose and what He intends to do in your life. Who knows what the crisis you're in is really all about. But I know God's purpose for you. Romans 8.29 says that those whom He called, He also predestined to be conformed into the image of His Son. So God's purpose for you and for me is that sometime between now and glory, He's going to conform us a little bit at a time until we take on the image of Jesus. He's working in you to make you look like Christ. And because of that, though the crises are deep, disorienting, where's up and down anymore? Who knows? But Paul can say, I know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. God doesn't change His mind about you. Those aren't things He maybe thought at one point you could, maybe if you tried hard enough, end up looking more like Jesus tomorrow than you do today. No, God has a purpose for you. Paul says, Philippians 1.6, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And that's not a wish list thing. Maybe. Now, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He's the one who said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Because of that, no crisis has the final word on what God's doing with our lives. Pharaoh didn't have the final word on whether Israel got to go to the promised land. Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, Darius, Cyrus, none of them had the final word on whether Judah got to go home and rebuild their temple and their walls and live in their homeland again. No, God had the final word. And so, allow his faithfulness to ignite hope in your soul. And that morning when I got that flat tire, does seem like a long time ago, and it was half my life ago, like 15 years ago, which is all crazy when you think about that. But you know, I've learned something that I couldn't have imagined then. What the preachers always used to say, you know, you're either coming out of a crisis, you're in a crisis, or you're heading into a crisis. That is so true. We were so naive and 16. Could not have anticipated how insignificant a flat tire would be as far as crisis goes. How the things we've faced since then make that seem so small. I would pray for a flat tire over some of the things I've faced. And you know it too. Crisis is the fact of life on earth. Struggle, trial, 
Ours may not be as severe as getting thrown into a fiery furnace or into a lion's den, but we're going to face challenging times. And if we want to be faithful for the future, whatever crisis we may face, we've got to learn to trust in God, to turn to Him in times of crisis. And so this morning, I want to challenge you to resolve in your heart to allow God's Word to interpret your circumstances. There are lots of things out there that you could use to try to figure out what's going on in your life. We, we often default to our feelings. And so we feel a certain way about the things we're facing, and we allow that to determine our reaction to it. You know, our feelings aren't very good indicators of what's real sometimes. The news, fake news, real news, whatever, it's not a good indicator of what's going on either. The only source that we should trust in interpreting our circumstances is the Word of God. It perfectly interprets the things we face every day. It gives us the up, the down. It shows us the path that God would have us walk. It gives us wisdom and clarity and insight into every decision we have to make. And even though our bosses name it in there, God is. And so resolve in your heart to allow God's Word to interpret your circumstances. But also remember God's faithfulness to you in the past and allow it to fuel your hope in the future. I was thinking about this. We talk about spiritual discipline sometimes. Spiritual discipline of Bible reading, prayer, meditation on Scripture. You know, sometimes the most important spiritual discipline that we could give our time to is sitting around the lunch table with our family and telling stories about how God has come through for us in the past. You know, to think really, because life is chaotic and hectic, day comes, day goes, day comes, day goes, and you get caught up in that just endless monotony of going to work and coming home and eating dinner and going to bed. But when you take time to pause as a family and reflect on what God has done and what God has been, it builds within us so much gratitude, thankfulness. It, it reminds us of who God really is. He's not an abstract concept. He's not a doctrine. He is a person who every step of our lives is with us, guiding us, protecting us, and bringing us to the end when we are conformed to the image of Jesus. So remember God's faithfulness to you in the past. Maybe you need to start a gratitude journal. Maybe you need to write down the story of your life so you can do that. But finally, I challenge you to repent of your sin. Next week, we're going to see God's response to Daniel's prayer, and we're going to get back into the visions thing. But he couldn't get the clarity he needed from God until he dealt with the sin in his own life. You know, God also said through the prophet Jeremiah that your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sin has made it so he does not hear your prayer. And it's not always true that in times of alienation from God or when we don't feel like He's hearing us, it's not always because we've sinned. But in my experience, it often is because I'm not where I'm supposed to be in relation to Him. And so if you find yourself disoriented in a crisis, struggling to find the surface and get some air, it might be worth your time asking the Lord to reveal in your heart unconfessed and unrepented sins. Because I believe that just as the Proverbs say that there's a way that seems right to a person, but its end is death, 
that you and I can inadvertently find ourselves on life trajectories that left unchecked will lead to destruction and crisis. And we don't, I don't think anybody, I've never met a person in counseling or in conversation who set out to destroy their relationships and make a mess of their whole life. But it began with something they thought was harmless or actually useful. And over time, they committed themselves to it, and it's gotten them to the crisis they're in. And so I think that sometimes, as we find ourselves on these life trajectories, God allows us to experience discomfort and crisis to get our attention, to wake us up. It's what he tried to do for Israel through the prophets, you know, in, in colorful ways. He tried to tell them, hey, wake up, Israel, return to your God, or else judgment is coming. And sometimes a minor blow up with our parents or with our spouse is God's grace to us to show us that if we don't take a good hard look at the trajectory of our life, we're going to experience more of stuff like this and in greater severity. And so if you find yourself in a crisis, repent of your sin. It is God's wake-up call to you. You know, Thomas Watson is a Puritan pastor. He said that repentance is a grace of the Holy Spirit that causes inward humility and visible reform. That means that a person can't just say they're sorry to God, but they have to actually experience an internal sense of their own humility before Him. Like Daniel said, we're not asking you this, God, because of our own merits or because of any righteousness that's within us. To actually humbly and honestly own up to the sins, the iniquities, the wickedness, rebellion, and the disobedience that characterizes a life apart from God. Do you have that? Inward humility. If you do, it will lead to visible change. You can't be a person humble before the Lord and live an arrogant life out here. The root is intimately connected with the fruit that's born in your life. And so I challenge you to repent of your sin. And in that way, you'll do better than I did, calling my dad to solve my tire. You turn to God in time of crisis and find that he is all we need. You pray with me.